2019, I visited Yard Basham, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center in Jerusalem, Israel. And taking a day to remember the Holocaust when six million Jewish people lost their lives during the genocide, taking a day to remember that while you're in Jerusalem, the ancestral and spiritual home of the Jewish people, it just brought a new weightiness to this historical tragedy. You're joining us in the fifth week of a series on the story of Esther. And if you're just now jumping in, be sure to go back and watch or listen to the first four weeks of the story. You really need to go back and listen because I'm going to do a quick recap here, but it does not do it justice. So here's our recap. Ready? The Israelite people have been exiled from their homeland in Jerusalem. And a remnant of those Jews, they're living in Susa, the capital of Persia. King Xerxes is in power and is looking for a new queen. And so he picks Esther, a Jew, for his new queen. But Esther keeps her Jewish identity a secret from the king. Esther, an orphan, has been raised by her cousin Mordecai, also a Jew. And Mordecai is hated by Haman, who is the king's right-hand man. And he hates Haman because Haman refused to bow down to him. And Haman gets so angry at Mordecai that he convinces the king to kill all the Jews in Susa. Well, when Mordecai hears of this plan, he rushes straight to Esther and he tells her to go to the king and plead for the life of her people. Well, this is a risk for Esther because nobody, even the queen, gets to go before the king without permission. And if she does this, she could possibly be put to death. But Mordecai says, Esther, Esther, maybe you became queen for this very reason, to save your people. So Esther eventually agrees and she goes to the king on behalf of her people and she gets in front of the king, and fortunately, the king does not kill her. She has this attitude of, if I die, I die, but the king does not kill her. But instead of telling him right away what she wants, she invites the king and Haman to a banquet. And at the banquet, she still doesn't tell them what she wants. Instead, she invites them to a second banquet the next day, the next night. Well, between the, the night between banquet number two and banquet number one and banquet number two, Haman decides that he's going to kill Mordecai the next day. So he has a 75-foot pole sharpened and is planning to impale Mordecai on it. Meanwhile, the same night, the king decides that he is going to celebrate Mordecai because he remembers that Mordecai saved his life at one point. And so the following day, the king asks Haman to parade Mordecai through the streets, praising him. So on the day that Haman was planning to kill Mordecai, he ends up parading him through the streets. And we come to the final act of the story, beginning in Esther chapter 7. Here we go. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet on the second occasion. And while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? And Queen Esther replied, if you have found favor with the king, if I have found favor with king, if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people be spared. Now, hold them. 
Hold on a second. As far as we can tell here, this is the first time that Esther reveals to the king that she is a Jew. And so Esther continues, for my people and I have been sold to those who will kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Now, it's interesting because Esther positions things in a weird way. She's like, look, King, really, if, it, if we were just being taken as slaves, it wouldn't bother, I, I wouldn't bother you with it because that's just too trivial. But what's interesting is that Esther and the whole harem of women who the king brought in as his concubines are essentially sex slaves to the king. But the king comes back and he says, who would do such a thing? Who would do such a thing to you? Who would be so presumptuous as to even touch you? And Esther replied, that wicked man, Haman, is our adversary and our enemy. And she points Haman out, and Haman grows pales with fright before the king and the queen. And then the king jumped up to his feet in a rage, and he went out into the palace garden. But Haman, however, he stays behind and he pleads with this for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king was going to kill him. And in despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining, just as the king was returning from the palace garden. And so the king exclaims, will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. Then Harbana, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Hey, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard, and he intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. And so the king says, Then impale Haman on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up. For Mordecai. Whoa, the ultimate irony. I mean, if this were a movie, you'd be like, hey, you guys, you gotta watch this. I didn't even see that coming. Serious plot twist here. Haman has set up a pole to kill Mordecai, having no idea that this very same pole would be used for his own execution. And then Esther went again before the king, falling down at his feet and begging him with tears to stop the evil plot devised by Haman against the Jews. Again, the king held out his gold scepter to Esther. And so she rose and she stood before him. And she says, if it pleases the king, if I have found favor with him, if he thinks it is right, and if I am pleasing to him, the pandering, right? <laughs> Let there be a decree that reverses the orders of Haman. For how can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed? So the king gives Esther all of Haman's property, and he gives Mordecai the power to write the king's new decree, which reads this. The Jews in every city have the authority to unite to defend their lives. They are allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them or their children and wives, and to take their property, the property of their enemies. So on the appointed day, when all the Jews were be, to be killed, instead, the Jews defend themselves, and they kill about 500 people. And at the end of that day, the king asked Esther 
what else do you want? And Esther says, give the Jews permission to do this again tomorrow and let the bodies of Haman's 10 sons be impaled on poles. Meanwhile, the other Jews throughout the king's provinces had, have gathered together and killed 75,000 more people. When you get to the end of this story, you just want to be so happy because the Jewish people are saved. But when you continue reading to the very end of the book of Esther, it's just this cycle of sin and destruction. So honestly, I mean, what are we to make of this? Well, let's take a moment and put the story of Esther in the overall narrative of the entire Bible. And in order to rebuild his relationship with mankind, God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. He says, I'll protect you, and I will be your God, and I ask that you obey me. And the people agree until they don't, which begins this cycle of like sin and repentance, sin and repentance. God remains faithful to the Israelites, but they do not remain faithful to God. They go their own way, and they, then they repent, and they come back to God, and then they go their own way, and they repent, and they come back to God, and it goes on and on. And this entire pattern really repeats itself throughout the whole Old Testament of the Bible. And it's in this pattern that we find this story of Esther, right smack dab in the middle of that pattern. And the Israelites are living in exile because of their rebellion against God. And then God reveals himself in this story once again as the rescuer of his people, the Jewish nation. By working through Esther and Mordecai and even King Xerxes to release the Jews from this evil plan of genocide. Whew. So... The story of Esther is right in the middle of God's ultimate story, a love story of God pursuing people and never giving up on people, even though they constantly turn their back on God. So finally, God sends his son Jesus to earth to die on behalf of the sin that separates imperfect people from a perfect God. And now we have the opportunity for peace with God because of Jesus, who took the penalty for our sin. So, as a result of that, we read all scripture through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of God's ultimate plan for rescuing people, which culminates with Jesus. So, when we read Esther, we also read the story of Jesus, Esther is willing to risk her life on behalf of the Jewish nation. If I die, I die, she says. And this mirrors Jesus, who not only risks his life, but gives his life, not just for the Jewish nation, but for all of humankind. So the story of Esther is, is a suggestion of, of what's to come. The story of Esther is God reminding the Jewish nation that he will never leave them. He will never forsake them. So what's our takeaway? I, I think it's this. I think our takeaway is God always is working for the ultimate redemption, 
restoration and salvation of people. Here's what we can see when we place Esther's story in the grand narrative of the whole Bible. We see that God uses imperfect people as part of his perfect plan. Now, we can easily assign good and bad to the characters of the story in Esther. Um, we could say Esther and, um, and Mordecai good, Xerxes and Haman bad. We could easily assign that. And although Esther and Mordecai really appear faithful to God in this story, and they are the beacons of hope in this story, the truth is each person in this story is morally compromised in some way. And after the Jews are rescued and the, they defend themselves on that day, showing that they are not going to allow this to happen, they're allowed to defend themselves. The very next day, Esther comes in and she says, I want another day. I want another day to do that. Even more people. Is this justice? Or is it overkill? I mean, literally overkill. Is Esther morally compromised in this moment? Doing to others what she didn't want done to her own people? I'm reminded of this statement from the Bible Project. God can and does work in the moral ambiguity of human history. And he uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people to accomplish his purposes. So the book of Esther asks us to trust God's providence. No matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming the world. God is at work in the world, which gives me a lot of hope because I know that I am a morally compromised person. From time to time, we all are. Yet God can use us to work his good. He partners with us to work his good and his plan of redemption in the world. The second thing we see in the story of Esther is God is working a redemption plan even if it doesn't fit my plan. God didn't rescue Esther. I mean, she and a full harem of women were taken into the king's custody for his pleasure. This is an evil plan. That was not God's plan. But knowing that God is sovereign and that he possesses ultimate power over this world, he could have rescued Esther and those other women from sex slavery. But he doesn't. Instead, he gives Esther a voice in it. He gives her a part to play in an exiled country under an evil king. An orphan whose parents die when she is young, living in exile. She's robbed of any agency over her own life or decisions. She has no power. And yet God is working through her and gives her a voice. I'm sure Esther's plan would have been to grow up in Jerusalem, her homeland, with two loving parents that don't die when she's too young. I'm sure she wanted the opportunity to make her own decisions and fulfill her own dreams and choices. But God was working a redemption plan even when evil interrupted Esther's own story. The third thing we see in this story of Esther is God is working the ultimate good for all people. 
Paul describes this truth in the Bible in this way. He says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. When I was growing up, I would think, oh, great. God's going to always give me what I want for me, like he's going to do whatever I want. That's he's going to work for my good. But it doesn't take only just a little bit of living life to show us that this certainly is not what Paul meant. See, God wants the ultimate good for people, which sometimes means he allows our temporary good to be compromised. Hear this. God does not cause evil or pain, but God is sovereign, all-powerful, and we see that he doesn't always interrupt evil and pain. Why? Why? One of the primary questions of faith. C.S. Lewis says it this way, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God wants nothing more than for us to have a relationship with him. And this is our ultimate good. Nothing is more important or better than that. And if we never experience pain or hardship in this world, we may never look to God. So I think that we have to keep an eternal, an eternal perspective on this stuff, our eternal good. God is working for our eternal good, even if life is really hard, evil, and bad. So when life is not going our way, we can know that God is working out things for the good of all humankind. And our best good is to know Him, and our best good is to surrender to Him. I discovered after a little research that the word holocaust means a burnt sacrifice offered whole to God, like a whole sacrifice. A burnt sacrifice offered whole to God. The bodies of the Jewish victims were consumed whole in the fires of cremation. And it's unclear who first named it the Holocaust, but there's evidence that a Jewish rabbi, shortly after things had ended, he was writing a telegram and he suggested a day of remembering for the Holocaust. And he called it that. It didn't stick until years later. It really didn't become regularly called the Holocaust until the 60s, 1960s. But knowing the meaning of the word, this rabbi, said, we need a day of remembering for the sacrifice by fire of these Jewish bodies. He was inserting God, a sacrifice to God in the very evil story. That's faith. That's faith that God is ultimately working a redemption plan in spite of the darkest evil in the world. See, faith is trusting that God has worked throughout history, his story, and will continue to work in the mystery of my story. So whatever darkness you're fighting in right now, God is working for the good of you, the ultimate eternal good for you and for me. Let's pray. 
God, I just thank you that you're working in our lives. Thank you for that. Thank you that we can trust you. Help us to trust you. We doubt. We doubt. I doubt when things are bad. Help us to trust you in spite of the evil that we see. Thank you for working on our behalf. Help us to have the courage to surrender our lives to you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.